Welcome to season three, episode nine of Our Voices, Our Community. Each week, we focus on issues that are important to you and our community. We discuss an array of issues in Roanoke and the New River Valley, from social to political to economics, but also arts and culture and so much more. Our goal is to merge local with state and national issues that affect our lives here in Southwest Virginia. So let's get started with today's episode. I'm excited about that. Um, This week we have a a different voice leading us. I am Karen Jones and joining me today is Will Solari. Hey. How you doing? Good. Yeah. You're always sort of the voice too. You're you're the secret voice because you you write our... uh, you know how we get in these things going and 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 kind of pick so yeah you, you're like the behind the curtain I'm like, wizard I'm, oh like the wizard <clears throat> yeah wizard of Oz. i love that but i'm more like the whiz yeah that well sure so yeah but yeah it's good i'm excited <laughs> i'm excited today today's gonna be good you guys we also have a special guest with us um matt chittam is here today. Um, as many of you all know, Matt covers Roanoke City for the Roanoke Times. He is a Roanoke native, which gives him great insight on who we are and what we do and all that good stuff. So welcome, Matt. Is this the part where I sing Ease On Down the Road? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Sorry. I'm so, glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Funny I will not s- sing. Well, that's okay. We um, In high school, I was in swing choir. And the favorite song that we did is when we sang Ease On Down the Road. So. Well. So yeah, from the Wiz, right? From the Wiz. So yeah, the the one the first time I saw the Wiz, I was home from school and had like a hundred degree, million degree fever, and so my very earliest memories of the Wiz are the Wiz are like very skewed. Then when I went back and watched later, I was like, oh, that's not what's happening at all. Like, uh- <laughs> I was just fever delirious the first time I saw this. That make it better or worse? I you know it's you know mixed. Yeah, <laughs> uh, things made a lot more sense uh, uh, later. So yeah, yeah, it's like this is the Wizard of Oz. It's like okay, oh yeah, right, it is. Yeah. You just but hands down, the Wiz is like my favorite. I watch it all the time. It's like my favorite. So we could actually do a whole podcast <laughs> of me reenacting the Wiz, but I will save you guys. Let's that for a later for our, for our culture arts and culture episode. Yes, let me make a note of that. That's exactly yeah. what we'll do. So, so Matt is here with us because we want to talk a little bit about what's happening with the Roanoke Times. Um, if you haven't heard just recently, um, BH Media has sold all of its newspaper holdings to Lee Enterprises. And this definitely means a change in ownership for the Roanoke Times. And so we invited Matt to talk about that with us today. And that, as well as kind of the state of media, maybe print journalism in general, and what that looks like, particularly to our local communities. Um, so Matt, we'll just kind of get started. Our flow, um, if you haven't listened to our podcast before, but I'm sure you have, which um, is very conversational, and Will and I just kind of like to jump in and ask really in-depth questions. Absolutely. So, Please bring it. So, well, you do not have to worry. <laughs> <laughs> So, and occasionally talk about musicals. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anything to make it light and fresh. Um, but we'll just kind of get started with, can you just give us um, an overview of the events, kind of from the initial sale, I believe, that started, that was in 2013, right. um, to kind of where we are today? Gotcha. So the, the Runic Times had been owned for since 1969 by a Virginia-based company mm-hmm. called uh, Landmark Communications, uh, based in Norfolk. And um, 
that was really it was a, it was a I guess what you call a small chain. So there were three sort of big flagship newspapers: mm-hmm. Us uh, here in Roanoke, the Virginia Pilot in Norfolk, and the Greensboro North Carolina paper. And then they had uh, a bunch of other smaller papers. Um, some dailies, a lot of weeklies, and then um, what? If anyone outside of the newspaper chain ever heard of Landmark, it's because our founder invented the Weather Channel. Really? Yes. Um, and then sold it to NBC for like three point two billion dollars. Wow. So, um, uh, so yeah. the Batten family were the owners, and uh, and the the Weather Channel is this sort of outlier beast. But it really it was a family owned newspaper company. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because, that's important because family ownership versus shareholder ownership is a really different beast. Mm-hmm. So you know we um, in those days, you know, we're, we griped about the bosses. Mm-hmm. Uh, we thought it was just awful. They didn't care about journalism, <laughs> and we had no idea how good we had it. Frankly, right. looking back, um, so um, we were on the market. You know, for about five years, uh, Frank Batten Sr. died. Frank Batten Jr. began to just slowly sell off pieces of the company, um, and so we had a few people come and kick the tires, but nobody bought us. And we were like, "Please, someone come buy us. It's got to be better than this." Um, 2013, the sale to Berkshire Hathaway um, and their newly created media division, BH Media. Uh, announced that they were buying us. They had already bought the Greensboro paper. They were buying other papers elsewhere in Virginia and ultimately bought up pretty much every daily paper and a few weeklies in Virginia, everything from essentially Fredericksburg West. Oh, wow. So Fredericksburg, Richmond, Charlottesville, Lynchburg, Danville, Bristol, Martinsville, Franklin County News Post, and others in between, all owned by Berkshire Hathaway. Um, <clears throat> and, um, well, we thought this is going to be great. Huge, wealthy company. We'll get investment. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll even get a raise. Um, and uh, and it has not proved to be that at all. Um, the uh, I don't think with, uh, you know, and this will be me being boastful. I've never worked at another newspaper. I've been at the Running Times for 26 years. Mm-hmm. But what I've come to learn about it is that it's a, it's, it's a kind of an overachieving paper for uh, the size it is and, and, and the size market it is. And I think part of that is just a function of us being out here in the western end of the state and we're the big daily. Mm-hmm. Um, we're a small market major league team. We're like the Minnesota Twins journalistically. So, you know, on statewide stories and in statewide journalism contests, we're competing with the Richmond paper and the, the Washington Post even, mm-hmm. Norfolk, Newport News. And um, BH from the beginning treated us like a community newspaper. And, of course, we are a community newspaper, but we were trying to achieve more than that. We were trying to do statewide stories. We were trying to do depth and investigation. You know, we, we've been a Pulitzer finalist three times, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so I don't, think, I don't think BH ever really understood that. And so we were managed from the beginning like we were something smaller. And, um, and so the expectations were sort of lower journalistically and... They didn't. Whenever they brought people in from within the chain, it was always from smaller papers, not bigger papers. Um, and uh, so things started to be sort of diluted right from the beginning. Yeah. Um, I feel like I've gotten a little off track here, but uh, yeah. um, you know, we we have seen some small amounts of investment, and, and you know, some of it was was paradoxical. You know, about three months in, we had a layoff. They laid off thirty five people. 
Um, to be fair, Landmark had laid off a few people not long before they sold us, but they'd owned us since 1969, and that was the first layoff. Mm-hmm. Of course, times were a lot better. At the same time, they were investing like a million dollars in our building. You know, sure, we had deferred maintenance, but we <laughs> we didn't need the paint, right? you know, as much as we needed the people, like right. people and yeah. salaries uh, and so on. And so since then, it's been sort of a... Um, not a dramatic contraction, but you know, smaller layoffs have been almost annual events. Hmm. Um, in between, um, uh, a pretty good amount of attrition, um, and we were already shrinking under Landmark. And just to give you a little perspective, um, some numbers: when I started at the at the Renwick Times, uh, we we printed hundred, we sold one hundred twenty six thousand papers on Sundays. On average, and 116,000 during the week. We were right before I started. We had we had fallen off our perch as the highest penetration metropolitan daily newspaper in the in the country. We were in 95 or 98 percent of the homes in our coverage area. Think about that. That's insane. That's huge. Yes. Yeah. Well, we could kind of only come down from that. Um, right now, we're at about 30,000 papers a day. Some of that readership has gone online. Mm-hmm. But the difference is we're still making money off the the print paper, and we're still struggling to get any comparable amount of revenue out of the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we also sort of changed the conversation in the middle of that, too. We used to talk about circulation, and now we talk about readership to in, be inclusive of people who read online. Um, so uh, the, the, the newsroom staff was about 125 people when I started and it was that up until about 10 years ago. I don't think we have 125 people in the entire running times now. Wow. Well, you know, I think this is a good place to start too. You know, what were you doing that 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 kind of led you to the the paper? How did you get into journalism and and sort of what were your what were your sort of aspirations coming into the times because I think, you know, I it's a very good picture, I think, also of of what the newsroom was like, what the readership was like, then, um, and and again, like I, just for perspective, like what were you doing before that? What what brought you to the New York or the New York Times, the the Roanoke Times? <laughs> so there's a lot packed into that, and sure. um, and on a, on a personal level, I didn't aspire to work the newspaper. I had you know I got a degree in English at at Roanoke College. You know, at, well, first I got to plug Virginia Western. I have to have a Degree from Virginia Western that set me on the right course after being on the wrong course for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, Same time. I'm with you. English uh, at uh, Roanoke College, straight to grad school at VCU, got a master's in English, and came back to Roanoke thinking I was going to take a couple of years off before I went back for my doctorate. Um, I, I was teaching adjunct at a couple of colleges here, including Virginia Western, and then what was called the College of Health Sciences, and realizing that while I like being in front of a classroom and I like talking about writing and teaching writing, the work of teaching was really unappealing to me. Mm-hmm. And I realized that that could not be my, the, you know, the career path that I had imagined for myself was not really what I wanted once I got a closer view of it. So um, I was tending bar at Billy's Ritz and I was still teaching. And it was, uh, uh, oh, 93, 1993, and we were in a recession. Um, my hours got cut at the bar. My hours got cut at the community college. A job that I had lined up in the writing center at the community college got cut from full time to 30 hours to 10 hours to nothing all in the space of a few days. 
Um, okay. And wow. I was suddenly, my wife had quit her job as a caseworker for CHIP and had gone to, to finish her degree at Radford. And uh, I had about $8,000 in income for the two of us that I could count on over the next year. So I was kind of desperate. And a friend of mine named Lon Wagner, uh, who was a business writer at the paper and was one of my regulars at the bar, came in and sat down and we talked about scotch for a minute. And then I said, is there any work at the paper? And he said, you know, I think they're hiring a part-time editorial assistant. An editorial assistant, which we no longer have, um, but those are sort of the, the dishwashers of the newsroom. Mm-hmm. Um, in the old days, it was, you know, they were called copy boys. Um, and so it was mostly clerical work. And so my first job, at the, I applied. I nagged them. I took like a typing test. I took a dictation <laughs> test. Um, and uh, three weeks later, um, this woman hired me, uh, Jenna Connor. And um, she said, I've checked all your references, including some you don't know, and no one will say anything bad about you, so I guess I have to hire you. So I started out nice. working, I think, 25 hours a week. Um, I it was immediately like, and I was like, I mean, I was a member of the literati, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I have a degree, sure. a master's degree in literature. Right. Uh, you know, I was a snob about newspaper writing. And being in the newsroom, I was very quickly smitten. Um, I realized it was it was civically important. It, was, it, it, it impacted people beyond the building in which we did it. And, and I felt a flow of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I like, no one wanted to use voicemail back then. And so a lot of what I did was answer the main newsroom telephone. And so people would call for reporters. The reporter wouldn't answer, and the call would ring over to the main line. And I would, I would answer the call. Sometimes they would, I would take a message. Sometimes they would just somebody would give me a tip, and I would have to get it to the right reporter. And that tip would turn into a story, and it would be in the paper the next day. And I'd go, oh, wow. Part of that that sort of turned upon me doing my job a little bit, and sure. I felt a part of it in that very small way. And it and it really just kind of sucked me in. And they let me write a little bit. And then at some point, I decided that it was what I wanted to, that I wanted to stay. Um, the job became full-time, and then they sort of tried me out reporting full-time. I did well enough that they kept me, and, mm-hmm. and, and I'm still there. Um, the newspaper was, you know, just a, to, to place those events in time, the, the, uh, the newsroom was, had one internet connection. It was, uh, it was an old Macintosh 512K enhanced computer that was only there uh, to have an AOL account on it. And it was a dial-up connection. Nice. You know, kind of hook up. And uh, the main thing I remember using it for is um, I wrote a story about how Ernest Hemingway mentioned Roanoke in a short story. And I wanted to find scholars to talk about that. And there was a search service that I could access through that, that I, I found a couple of Hemingway scholars to talk about that story. And so that was the internet oh, yeah. in the newsroom. Wow. Um, I already mentioned what our circulation was. Um, and the feel of working at a newspaper was, you know, people outside the paper thought of it as important. Mm-hmm. And I would tell people, you know, oh, I work at the newspaper. Oh, really? What do you cover? And I tell people now, and they're either ho-hum, or sometimes they're just angry. You know, the, the, the reaction to the paper um, has really changed dramatically over time. Um, I'm still very proud of being there. And, uh, but, you know, the way people respond to us, you know, we've gone from, people ask me what the sort of the big arc of, you know, how's the newspaper changed mm-hmm. uh, over the time that I've been there? And they always want to go to the Internet. Well, that's a big change, but, but what that has facilitated is what's really the big change. And that's the way people respond to the paper and the way people think of the paper. You know, it's a much more diverse news landscape now, and 
people can kind of find whatever they want. And they're a lot smaller, they're a lot more smaller, you know, news sites, news organizations, publications, whatever they are. Um, and we've gone from being the people that could be trusted to keep an eye on the man mm-hmm. to just being another incarnation of the, of man. the man. We're just another institution to be distrusted for a lot of people. Well, this is a curious thing too, and, and maybe you can you can speak to how this this transition happens within your own career too, because you know you start in literature, and I'm sure you had to refine the way that you wrote to fit into journalism. Mm-hmm. And now it seems like it's almost the other way, where 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 news is entertainment and is written in such a way that it's. It's not necessarily the facts as much as it is, you know, like to your point, finding the news that that, that perks your interest or clickbait or or sensationalizing things in order to stand out in a crowd, as it were. You know, I I would accept us from the trend that you're you're talking about. Um, um, Try me with that question again. I just lost the thread. (laughs) This will be your first day. Essentially, you know, again, going from literature to journalism, right. I'm sure there was a shift. Right. And now it seems like there's, and, and not with the with the Roanoke Times necessarily, but amongst, you know, major media outlets that have, have are quote unquote news, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's Fox News or, or whoever, taking what is usually something straightforward, you know, uh, Matt Chittam walked into the office today and, oh, Matt Chittam, you know, it, and turning it back into entertainment, turning it almost into literature in a way that isn't. Journalism, is it? Would you say that was part of like the shift, or is that I think part that's of the, part the way of it that people and digest news now? I think what tell me, I, tell me if I'm labeling it something different than what sure, you're sure, describing. Yeah. But what it feels like you're talking about is the the blur that has happened between news and comment, and and that's most visible on. Uh, on cable news, and I would right. say across cable news, sure. regardless of the bias of the outlet. Right. And so, you know, you have these talking heads that you associate with whatever cable news channel, whether it's, you know, um, Sean Hannity on Fox sure. or, mm-hmm. or Anderson Cooper on CNN or Rachel Maddow. And those people are commentators. Right. They're not, you know, doing independent factual reporting for you. Right. And what, it, I guess, does that damage journalism, though? Because people assume yes. that, you know, again, if you report on something factually, um, that's boring, mm-hmm. right? And it's not the kind of, uh, whether it's confirmation bias or the kind of exciting headline you would need to get a Washington Post click or a Fox News click or, 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 or something very separate, it seems, than, you know, we're getting the Roanoke Times and we'll read what's in it. It might not be, um, you know, this sensationally... Glamorous crazy article or whatever but we read it because we trust the new york mm-hmm. times or the, i keep saying new york times because Roanoke we times. are in the new york of the south right um <laughs> and that, that seems like one of those big shifts you know culturally too and in the way that people again you know you mentioned that when you started the the news was about 126 you know 126,000 households um and the way that shift happens is again people the, the great democracy almost Become starts to cannibalize itself and, and cater to this lowest form of of, of catering the news or, or, or selecting which news you're going to participate in. So the way I experienced that, and this has been going on for a long time, is that people take their perception of national news outlets or what they're told should be their perception of national news outlets. You know, you can't trust the media, the lamestream media, right. the mainstream media, or whatever. 
and they that becomes their lens for viewing all news media, and they apply it, in my view, inappropriately to their local daily newspaper. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so they think, oh, well, you know, all news and comments, all one thing, you know, CNN's all just liberal bias, or Fox is all, you know, just conservative bias. And they assume that we have that bias too. Right. And what we have, and, and not that we are free of bias, um, but we, you know, we make an effort to be as close to perfect on that as we can. Right. Our editorial department, though it's down to basically one guy now, is still separate from the news department. Our comment is distinct from our, our factual reporting. Sure. And people don't want to accept that because they're told that it's all the same and that's the way then they should hate media because that's what media well, is yeah, now. Well, how do you, again, how do you handle that as a, as a local journalist? Because, well, I mean, I'm sure you get a lot of fire for speaking the truth sometimes. Or, or, or again, factually reporting fact, things yeah. that people have opinions on. So let me add to my last answer. Because oh, sure, sure. I, I think this kind of really, and I've thought about this part a lot. What people are have come to view all news media as either, you know, or they view all information, I will say, in a binary. Mm-hmm. It either confirms my bias or it is opposed to my bias. So they have two buckets in which to put all the information that they see or experience. Well, if you only have two buckets and then you're confronted with information that really doesn't belong in either because it's really trying to just stay down the middle and give you factual information, what do you do with that information if you only have two buckets? Well, it's factual and doesn't confirm my bias, so therefore it must be against my bias. Right. Mm-hmm. So it belongs in the other bucket. The problem is that to, tra- news consumers have uh, been trained to or decided or whatever that they really should only have two buckets, and they don't know what to do anymore with middle-of-the-road factual reporting that doesn't belong in either. Well, you know, I run into this a lot, you know, and in, in, in it, they just all happen to be from the South, but I have a lot of family from the South, and, you know, uh, we'll talk about politics occasionally at family get-togethers or whatever, and, and you can present, again, factual evidence that has <clears throat> no relation to the news, but because Vox listed the amount of bills that were passed by Democrats or Republicans or whatever, it's fake. It doesn't matter that the actual meat of it, which is just a listing mm-hmm. of the bills, is real. It becomes this thing where, again, the perception overrides um, the actual fact of the news and the, 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 the underlying truth of news and, again, the, the, without the commentary. And I'm also curious how that sort of perception of news, whether it's local or, or, or larger than factors into the kind of people who are interested then in buying places like the Roanoke Times or, or the direction they want to take those places. Because again, maybe, you know, national trends and politics don't have a place in local news in the same way that they do making, you know, money as a, as a cable news outlet. Let me back up to a question, a part of your question I didn't sure. answer before, which is... And I'm of, giving you like 10 questions. Yeah, which is sort of, how do, you, how do I handle that stuff? Sure, yeah. yeah. If people are willing to engage on it, then... You know, then I, I tr- really try to engage them and truly try to point out to them that, well, you say you don't trust the Roanoke Times. Well, the Roanoke Times reported in this morning's paper that the Roanoke County Board of Supervisors voted to reject a proposed tax increase. Do you think you can't trust that information? Right. Do you think that's not factual? 
ideally they'll say, well, no, I trust that. And then I say, well, you know, today's paper also reported that, you know, the Patrick Henry boys basketball team, um, you know, beat the Blacksburg High School boys basketball team 86 to 72. Do you think that's not trustworthy? Well, of course they think it's trustworthy. And, and, and so what I try to do if they're willing to have the conversation mm-hmm. is lead them down the path to recognizing that their perception is different from the reality, which is that the Roanoke Times is mostly just full of facts that are not complicated and not laden right. with bias or even open to bias. Right. It's just information. And there sure. really is a lot there that they, whether they realize it or not, they really do trust. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and to get them to see the distinction between the the, the perception that they, they're borrowing from someplace else and laying on us isn't really applicable. Right. Um, I will say those conversations have gotten harder to have. Uh, I'll, I'll, two anecdotes. Um, uh, going back to covering presidential politics, which we don't do very often. And when, it's when you cover politics, and I will say I loathe covering politics. Um, and I, it's just not something I've covered. I, there's nothing I haven't covered uh, on a regular basis in my time uh, for some period of time except sports. Um, so I've a fair amount of time around politics, and I just, I just don't like it. Um, and uh, when Mitt Romney came for when he was running, um. Uh, in uh, was it twelve? Yeah. Um, came for a rally. Uh, it was over in Salem on the lot of I think Carter. I don't want to say the wrong business. A heavy heavy equipment business. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, my job was to go there and do a color story to talk to the people who who were enthusiastic enough to come out and and and, and attend a rally. And so there's a line, and I'm just sort of working the line. And I was accustomed to people sort of brisk. Oh, the Renwick Times. No, nothing to do with you. And so if they seemed open to it, I would say, oh, why not? And this, this one guy, you know, kind of gave me that line, oh, the Renwick Times, I can't trust you, you'll twist what I say. And, um, you know, one of the things that I say this to lots of people um, who, who aren't sure about whether to trust me as a reporter for whatever reason. Um, and, and, and it's, look, I'm not, every, not even one has the, the basis to say this, but I've been here almost my whole life. I'm not going anywhere. This is the one job I've got. If I burn you, mm-hmm. I'm only hurting myself. It is in my selfish interest to build credibility with you so that you don't go tell your you know, your 1,500 friends on Facebook or wherever that I'm a, a, a slug of a human being who can't be trusted. Right. I make my own life harder right. if I burn you. So why don't you give me a chance? Well, this one particular guy said, "All right, I'll give you a chance." Did the interview, and I said, "I'll give me your if you give me your te- your your phone number, I will call you later today, and I will read you the quotes from you that I intend to use just to make sure you're comfortable. Whatever I could to kind of win the guy mm-hmm. over." Um, so, flash forward to 2016, election day. I'm out working um, the uh, you know kind of going to different uh, um, voting precincts. To try to interview some voters, um, you know, Roanoke's a pretty blue city, and and I was making a, I wanted to make a deliberate effort to effort to find some folks who were more likely to be Trump voters. So um, Garden City, I knew from you know uh, primary voting was was a Trump stronghold. So I went to the Garden City precinct. Um, I stood outside. I, you know, I talked to some people inside of the you know the poll workers and whatnot. I stood outside to catch the people coming out after they had voted, um, and uh, this guy comes out, and I'm like, 
hey, I'm Matt Chittam with the Renwick Times. Um, can I ask you about your thoughts on the election? And I stuck my hand out to shake his hand. And the guy just looked at my hand, looked at me, and walked off without even saying a word. Wow. And I said, I guess not. <laughs> and he turned and came back at me. And, um, and I don't tell that story to brand Trump voters. I don't tell that story to those both happen to be about conservative sure. events. Mm-hmm. They're just what I happen to have covered. Obama came here. I didn't cover it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't sent to cover it. Um, but, you know, part of the, 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 the what detractors say about the Renwick Times is we have this liberal bias. And, and so I think that's the way sort of we're more commonly perceived by people who don't trust us. Right. And, you know, t- that's only two anecdotes and two don't necessarily make a pattern. But the difference in reaction from being able to engage one person and have a conversation or at least have the chance to try to establish credibility with them versus a person who was had seemed to have real animosity towards me, though he, mm-hmm. he hadn't met me. Um, it's um, it's a different time now to work in, in media. Now, I will say, when I went to the, the, the gun rights rally in Richmond a few weeks ago, um, you know, I expected, you know, some jeering, some harassment uh, in an environment like that. Um, and uh, I experienced none of it. Um, people were cordial to me. It was very crowded. There's a lot of shoulder to shoulder bumping into people. Um, I, you know, I, I felt like a sore thumb mm-hmm. in, in that environment. I, I wasn't wearing a press tag on my fedora uh, to advertise sure. who I was, but I didn't really look like, you know, right. uh, like I belonged there. I didn't, I didn't think I did. Um, and, uh, you know, I certainly wasn't wearing anything that you know, established my me being there for the cause or anything like so that. So you weren't open carrying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and at many times, if it was in plain view, I had, you know, I had a camera over my shoulder and I had a notepad and a pen out. It was sort of obvious to paying attention what I was there to do. Right. And I felt none of that. So, you know, maybe that's an exception mm-hmm. uh, yeah. uh, or maybe not, you know, mm-hmm. but. but no. Well, I, I wanted to go back to something that you had said earlier in kind of talking about the transition and the BH media kind of buying up all of these local newspapers. Um, And as we've already said before, you know, newspapers are, I think, an extension of our communities and talk about that. How does one large company like that change the flavor, so to speak, of our community newspapers um, and even the Roanoke Times yes definitely I mean that's this is the largest paper for that needs to cover like our entire southwest Virginia it's where we get that but um, I feel like the flavor changes a little bit because nobody they don't necessarily understand who we are I, I think that's that's a that's a fair question and and it, and, and it might be a fair assumption mm-hmm. um, to come back a little bit to uh, to answer that, but also come back to a question I think Will asked, which is about, you know, uh, does the influence of uh, national politics come into what we're doing through ownership? Um, my experience with both uh, Berkshire Hathaway and Lee was that it did not. Um, you know, this question was asked on the day that they announced that we were being bought by Berkshire Hathaway, you know, is... You know, you know, and, and Buffett sort of a, is a known Democrat. Mm-hmm. And um, and somebody asked the question, should we expect, uh, you know, 
orders to shift our editorial position on some level. And the guy who was the, the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway at the time, uh, Terry Kroger, said, look, we're all here today because Berkshire Hathaway bought the Rennick Thompson. That's great news. But let's put this in perspective. The Today, Berkshire Hathaway also bought an energy company in Nevada for $5 billion, um, which was a very polite way of saying is Warren Buffett doesn't know where Roanoke is and doesn't care what right. our editorial position is. Mm-hmm. And, and so as far as that went, that was... Um, uh, that was the truth. Um, well, and, and, and I think, you know, it is one part, you know, I, I, you did answer part of, of, of what I was trying to figure out. I, I guess when, when a, my question is when a company, um, you know, whether it's B&H or whoever else, end up buying a place um, and try then to manage it, um, is their way of putting their stamp on it or managing it or going in and, and, and taking over based on their perception of what news should be now, rather than the way that the Roanoke Times functions and, and works mm-hmm. as in a smaller setting uh, versus a global one or even statewide gotcha. setting? Mm-hmm. I, I think the answer is, the short answer is no. I mean, you know, we didn't really get pushed to do anything differently, at least from the corporate level. Um, sure. You know, we, we did have a publisher um, who came on with Berkshire Hathaway and who uh, uh, I, I'm happy to say departed about a month ago. Um, and she did initially interfere with our news coverage. And that is, she's the publisher of the newspaper. I mean, on paper, she can do what she wants, but it's just verboten. It's not done. And it was certainly never done at our paper. And we had a history of pushing back mm-hmm. when the publisher did. Um, but, you know, uh, you know that happened for a little while on a few stories, and then it, and then it went away. For the most part, we have been left to cover our community as we thought we should cover it. Sure. Now, where the the influence comes in, and this may be more to your point, is that you know, um, well, by comparison, um, Landmark, what I think I recognized even when they owned us, one of their strengths was that they didn't try to make all of their newspapers the same newspaper. They really gave flexibility and, uh, and a local autonomy to reflect the needs of the community where the newspaper was. Mm-hmm. And, and there was even flexibility across like technology platforms and things like that. There was like, okay, you're there, you know what you've got, you know your physical plant, you know your readers, you know your staff, you do what you've got to do mm-hmm. to operate your paper in the best way and we're gonna look at the outcomes and you know, the money that's coming to Norfolk or whatever. Right. And as long as that's working, cool. You know, there were some across the board stuff. And over time, there came to be more across the board stuff across all the newspapers. Um, with uh, Berkshire Hathaway, there was immediately a leveling of a lot of stuff where, you know, uh, you know, the first really obvious examples, we had this highly customized website that we had built. It was layered. It, it was rich and robust and had tons of content. And we, we really were focused on that as this is the ship that's gonna, that we're going to all have to climb onto, mm-hmm. you know, when the rest of the whole island we've been on is on fire. You know, the web has, print's not going to last forever. And right, so right. where's the life raft? This is it. And so we were really trying to build for that. And immediately Berkshire Hathaway was like, nope, they, that, that website went out the window. They pushed us onto a content management system that it, I, I, I looked this up 
as we say in the business, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. But I believe it's a content management system owned by a company that Berkshire Hathaway has an ownership interest in. And, and it's a very, if you looked at our website, you recognize this. It's templated, uh-huh. it's modular, blocky, not attractive, not very customizable, uh, but it's cheap. It is easy to use. Um, but to your point, I noticed 100% the change um, in the website, in the ways in which I was able to find um, information in the stories that I wanted, where now, um, Maybe it's a little more usable, but I'm always looking for more and deeper. And then I don't want to have to segment it to make sure I find Roanoke or Christiansburg or New River Valley. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel like I have to work a little bit harder to find my stuff, if that makes sense. I hear you. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that goes with that is that we went from this site that was customized for our readership. Mm-hmm to this one that was just your your website's gonna look like the Omaha paper and the Tulsa yeah. paper and um, and the, the Asbury Park, New Jersey paper and the Buffalo, New York paper. And, and so the idea of reflecting your community starts to leak out of the picture. You know, we saw that in their attitude towards um, the way, you know, I, I, I can't, I shouldn't speak for the ad staff, but I know what they told me. Um, the attitude towards advertisers changed. You know, um, one of our reps told me uh, one time that under Berkshire Hathaway, the directive was you get when you get an advertiser into your portfolio, you keep them in the family. And immediately the directive from Berkshire Hathaway was when you get them on the hook, move on to another one. And so, you know, we had an advertising clients that expected a level of service from us that was much that you would expect more from a, like a family owned newspaper, even a local business, yeah. um, to one that was much more just revenue driven and not about servicing, you know, those advertisers who are our customers. Um, you know, pay for our carriers was slashed almost immediately, um, and a lot of them quit because of that. Um, and they, they just don't seem to recognize that, that, um, things like institutional memory and relationships and, and, and enduring commitment are valuable, even if they're a little expensive. Well, this seems to be kind of a trend with, um, large enterprises or holdings groups who, who buy places like this. And I don't know if it's like a neoliberalism thing, which is an easy catch-all for um, pay people as little as possible or do as little as possible so that because these other people need to make money besides the people who are actually doing the work. But there, there seems to be sense, especially like with the television news around here, when they get bought up, it's like, hey, congratulations, cameraman. Um, you are now also an editor and a reporter and a writer, and we're going to pay you $5,000 less a year. Um, and it's because these companies want to make money off this thing and they're streamlining everything in order, you know, whether they're getting it to the website for, for, for the Roanoke Times or, again, the, the, the types of people they have reporting or actually constructing the news for the news or the television uh, version of the news. Um, in service, I guess, of making the parent company more money. I mean, is that something you notice too? Because again, you you know, you mentioned that there used to be 125 people in the, just the newsroom, and now there's 125 people mm-hmm. in the whole company. But you know, I'm sorry, but I see this trend though too, not just in the news, but in local business, like across the board, because everything seems to be more corporate 
we don't support local and then local goes out of business because they can't do the same thing that a CVS or a Walmart or Kroger can do. And so it, this attitude of corporate is better, maybe, is kind of all mixed I, together a little bit, maybe. I hear you. I don't really feel that. You know, okay. what I still feel at the Renwick Times, and this is very satisfying, mm-hmm. the people get mad at us when we change things. And it's because our readers feel like they're the owners of the paper. Good. They feel like it's their paper and you're messing with it. And it's everything from you leave the jumble out of the paper one day <laughs> uh, or change a comic. Holy hell. <laughs> um, they care and they're uh-huh. invested. To I, I think... Um, it's more of a matter of, you know, there's a lack of uh, awareness of sort of how we do things here and what this community is and um, and just the importance of relationships. Mm-hmm. And 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 for them, it's just, you know, the churn in staff and, and, and all that doesn't matter. And you ask anybody who sells who sells anything, if you don't have if you're if you're turning over your staff all the time and they don't have relationships, they're not going to get the new account. They're not mm-hmm. going to get the the you know the bump up in the size of what a buy is um, if they don't have a relationship with that person and if our advertisers are getting a different rep walking in the door every time someone comes by they don't feel a relationship they don't feel a commitment yeah. um, and 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 I just don't perceive a you know uh, uh, an interest in that kind of service and in, and and so you know in terms of what this did to like staffing and things like that. You know, it's money that drives everything. You know, we, we I, I couldn't tell you what our profit margin is. One of the ironies of this is is when we were a privately held company, we got really rich financial briefings quarterly. Hmm. We're now publicly held and we know nothing. It's opaque as far as how profitable our particular newspaper is. You know, we can see the Berkshire Hathaway stock shareholder report every year. That's kind of what we get. Um, so, I, you know... I can't tell you how profitable we are or how profitable we've been. But, you know, what I see is that they've made decisions on the business side. And sometimes it's hard to discern whether these are corporate level decisions coming out of Omaha uh, or now Iowa or after March 16th, Iowa, or whether they were local decisions. I think it's a mix of both. But when you do things like, you know, cut your carrier pay. So now you have carriers who don't know the routes. And now, now the paper is late. Or you have carriers who aren't as committed or don't recognize that it's really important to be on time and be there every day. Um, well, now you pay. Now you deliver. Now your delivery spotty. Mm. Well, and if your delivery spotty, then your customers are starting to lose faith in you. You know, and then then they start to quit. Well, now you've got open routes, and all right, now you've got people calling to complain. Well, along the way, you've outsourced your customer service. So when people call to complain and say, where's my paper? Can you still deliver it today or, or credit my account? They're getting someone at a contractor in Texas and not someone sitting in the Roanoke Times who lives in the same community in them and who feels their pain in a different way. Well, and it's curious because, you know, again, I, I can't help but feel these decisions don't happen when it is owned by a smaller group. Because again, you're looking. You're you know, even mm-hmm. if there's an owner and a and a and a small, just say corporation or LLC around the ownership of three or four papers, you don't really have to 
funnel a lot of money into their ownership for things to run right. I, I feel like when you start making these decisions to cut back on, you know, the, how much you pay carriers or, or customer service, that is more in service of the people who are benefiting or making money off mm-hmm. the Roanoke Times versus the the standard of the paper or the quality mm-hmm. of service they're able to provide them. Right. It's it's how connected are you to your community, to the people who actually work in the company and and uh, and things like that. But then it comes off on the customers. And so what happens is, well, okay, now our delivery is bad. Now our ability to answer complaints when delivery is bad is diminished. And it's also, they've made it really difficult to get the paper. You know, it's hard to call and become a subscriber now. Yeah. I think it's gotten a little bit better in the last six, eight months. But there was a period where we were routinely getting calls in the news department. We started logging them because we were getting so many customer service calls where people were calling in to say, I didn't get my paper today or you've stopped delivering my paper. Um, why? Kids, yeah. And they, they, they're... You know, it's some of it is just people will call any. They start calling any number they can find to get something to answer. Even like, oh, well, there's a reporter's phone number in the paper. Maybe he can help me. And so, you know, it was and not just me, but it was common for all of us as reporters to sit there and get phone calls from subscribers who were just frustrated. Hmm. And um, you know, or even like my sources, you know, people I cover would call me because they were having difficulty with their paper and they couldn't get anybody else, but they know me. The number of times that I helped John Garland when he was on city council get his online subscription straight <laughs> is ridiculous. And that's not my job. I, wanted, right. I was glad to help him like I was glad to help anybody else. Right. But I was the guy he knew, and he couldn't get anybody else. Well, that's and, crazy. And, and so what happens is now you're, you know, look, our trajectory is, as an industry is not good. Right. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that, many of which are self-inflicted. But what I feel like has happened under Berkshire Hathaway is they have hastened our demise, and um, and they've diminished our profits and diminished our circulation um, faster than what would have happened if we were dying a more natural death. Mm-hmm. And where that comes off is now, okay, now we get attrition. And I'll, I'll here's an example. Uh, well, we're in 2020 now. In 2019, we had three reporters um, voluntarily leave uh, our our news department. Um, one went to work for Google doing marketing. One went to work to be a public radio reporter back in the Midwest where he's from. And another went to work for Carillion. None of those people were replaced. And that's the outcome of them screwing up the business side. We have mostly in the news department been left to do our jobs the best way we think we can do them with the resources that they give us. Um, sure. What a... Well, and, and that's this, just a detriment to all of us. Absolutely, and, and, and it, this question maybe can be a segue into possible ways of fixing those things. But do you I mean do you think the news should be something that it's treated as a commodity or as a as <clears throat> as as a as a thing of monetary value versus what it does locally or um, almost as it functions as a public service? I mean, should we consider going forward the news, local news especially? being a public service and figuring out a way to, to fund that model as a thing that, again, is, is free of the trappings of entertainment news and, and bias and uh, is something that then doesn't get caught up in these holding groups or investment groups or whatever else as, as, a, uh, as a means to either go, oh, well, we had a loss, it's fine because we just bought something for $5 billion, so, you know, that 
250 million or whatever they spent on this news outlet, that's an acceptable like write off. Yeah. So that's that's I, I think the short answer is, is that we are a special class. And um, and, and I'll explain that. Um, uh, at least, uh, at least as I go along. But I mean, as a public service, though, do you think it should be something like that? Public in the sense that it's government owned. Maybe not government owned, but um, I don't know. It's, it would have to be some other kind of model in which, you know, you could operate free from these trappings of of corporate business law, which doesn't make a lot of sense for this because again, it ultimately damages your ability to do the thing that they bought you for. Um, and at the same time, uh, you also would be free, from, and then I'm just talking about news in general, but free from some of the trappings and, and the unintended consequences of things like MSNBC or Fox News or whatever else becoming so specialized in catering and commentary to you know get ad sales and, and basically make a profit more than they are reporting the news. Gotcha. So, no, we do need a, bit, a new business model. Um, I, I think the way it's got to go is uh, some form of nonprofit. That's what um, I was thinking. And, but let me back, let me, let me sort of back up and work and uh, a little bit and work back up into that. You know, everybody was fine with us being uh, a for-profit business like everybody else. And, and at the whim of the free market when business was great, mm-hmm. Sure. you know, Oh yeah, you're, you're the fourth estate. Yeah, that's fine. Everybody's about the fourth estate. Well, you know, people don't trust us the same way anymore, and we're not as profitable anymore. And so, uh, you know, now the idea that we're, you know, you know, our existence is, is, you know, recognized and protected in the U.S. Constitution. There aren't very many other industries that are. Right. I don't know if there's another uh, th- that's protected that way in the Constitution. Um, we're that important, and everybody was cool with that as long as everybody was making money. And everybody felt good about the job we're doing. Well, now the perception of us as uh, fair and unbiased and worthy of that protection has changed in a lot of people's minds. And the bloom has come off the profit tree. And so, you know, now we want to say, I want to say, I won't speak for everybody, that no, we're not just a business. We're an important component of, of, of the ecosystem of any healthy, you know, city town county right. place absolutely right and well and you know the, the 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 founders thought that our function was important enough to protect us in the constitution don't you think we're important enough to find a way to keep alive mm-hmm. and um and and i hear you know i've had this you know debate on social media and otherwise you know where i've argued for a nonprofit model uh or Here's an idea. I don't even know that, that, that I'm not smart enough business-wise to know if this w- would work. I read that Berkshire Hathaway under in the, the the tax cuts that were that were the federal tax cuts that were passed what year and a half ago now, um, that Berkshire Hathaway got a 29 billion dollar windfall, 29 billion dollars that they totally weren't expecting and didn't mm-hmm. ask for. Well, sh- shareholders are entitled to that. But what if Warren Buffett, as the owner of 70 newspapers, who he took into his care. And I don't think that's just a business investment. It's a public trust. Right. And was doing a damn poor job of running them. What if he had said, you know what? I propose that we take a billion dollars of this money, a fraction of this money that we got that we weren't asking for, and we create an endowment and invest it like Berkshire Hathaway money, which is wildly profitable, and we use that to... 
um, uh, to buttress the newspapers we own, increase reporting positions and photographer positions and editing positions rather than diminish them. And let's, let's protect the public service of local journalism in perpetuity with what is really a relatively small investment. So I put that, I don't know if that's realistic for me to ask no, or not. But it, it's no, certainly but it's, nobody heard it other than people like you sitting in this room. Right, but, but it, I love it. And it's one of those things that blows my mind because it is ultimately good for business in yeah. general. For the health of a city, for the for the way that again yeah. this sort of local ecosystem mm-hmm. functions, and and what that then does is make those people more money. Right. And I and I've I never understood the arguments against things like public art or or or, or other, you know, large things that are that cost money that you can't automatically see the intrinsic value the same way you can. Well, if we fire all those people, then we'll save you know fifty thousand dollars a month or whatever. Um, but it does create an atmosphere that is more ripe for business, that is more attractable uh, or is more attractive to, to development and, again, growing business. And I don't know why, again, like you said, the people who are really good at business don't see the value in that. Well, the reaction I got to that was, oh, well, but it's just you know, essentially you know, the free market response. You, you live and die on your own because right. you're a business. And if, you're, and if your product isn't saleable, then too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, I think if like, you know, if Kroger, which serves a lot of people here, were to go out of business, the free market would come and fill in. Sure. There would be a business opportunity for somebody else. Something's going to replace Earth Fair. Right. Right. You know, uh, whether it's whether customers will just find their way to a fresh market and the co-op or another food store of that type moves in there. Nobody's going to rush in and fill the void if this if this newspaper goes away. Right. And so my argument is that we're not just, you know, now that we really need help and we aren't just happy and profitable and throwing money off the shareholders everywhere, well, now that we're not, that whole special class, the Constitution thing isn't really that important. Yeah. Now, to go to your point about business, what does this community look like to a business that wants to, that is considering a new location? when there's no local daily newspaper in the biggest metropolitan center in the western half of Virginia. What does that say about our community? Um, well, I, I don't, I don't think it's a good look. And, and I go back a to a time look. when we were told by like Chamber of Commerce types that, that's not fair, but literally like the Chamber of Commerce and, and economic development people in this town that, that the way this newspaper presents online is a big piece of their economic development pitch and if the newspaper Absolutely. presents a com- the, like the first the newspaper looks whole and reflective of its community mm-hmm. um and tells the story of its community that's attractive to people who are looking to come here for business right. maybe that's not true anymore um but if it if it is then then it's going to be a loss in that regard well again, this is the same argument i had about the skate park with with you know well there's not enough people who really are would would take advantage of it uh, locally, and it's like it doesn't even matter if we had zero people who skateboarded in in Roanoke. It's the perception of having that here, especially if you're trying to get young people in, you're trying to attract people to the city. Does a uh, does a walking track for the AARP crowd really bring in a doctor who just graduated from Charlottesville to a place like Roanoke? And again, it's that perception. And and again, that's why I think of it as in regards as a public service and something that's needed for the area that you can't just let you know, giant corporations bat around back and forth 
because it means more to that than to a local ecosystem than it does to someone's hedge fund or to an mm-hmm. investment group or whatever else. Um, and so I just feel like there has to be a better way to give you guys the tools you need and yeah. to do those kind of things without suffering the, the, the whims and desires of people who are trying to, you know, looking at this as, as a gamble or an investment or a potential investment that may work right. So, well, this has been such a fascinating conversation for me. Um, I love the news and I love the Roanoke Times. You know, I grew up reading it. That's what we did as a, a family and what was modeled for me. So newspapers are so important to that. But kind of as we move through this, what, and I'm posing this to both of you guys, like what really does it mean to be an informed community? Like what is that gonna look like today going forward? You know, as a, well, I think about what our franchise is as a newspaper and what we think is important to inform you about. Mm -hmm. You know, on our best days, and with enough people to cover it all, what we're informing you about is, you know, our bread and butter, our staples, our franchise is what your local government is doing, mm-hmm. what your police department and, and other public safety are doing, um, what your school system is doing. Um, a lot of those are things that have to do with your what they're doing with your money and are they serving you the way you should be served? Are you as safe as you should be? Um, are they corrupt or not corrupt? There's all of those sorts of things. But then there's also the, the, you know, that's the civic life of the community. But then there's also just the broader life of the community. And it's, um, you know, what great thing went on at your kid's elementary school that other people would take joy from knowing about mm-hmm. or want to do in their kid's elementary school? You know, you know what did the local high school basketball team do? What did Virginia Tech football do? What did the rail yard dogs hockey team do last night? Um, what is business doing? You know, what's hap- what's going on with employment here? Um, is Carillion hiring? Is Carillion contracting? Um, is all this money that's been put into the South Jefferson Street for the, you know, the Research Institute and all that, is it paying off? Um, you know, what's the state of our local economy? These are all things that are the bread and butter of what we do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what I want people to think about is how do you make decisions about, you know, what you think about your, your, the school system your children are in, what you think about who to vote for, what you think about um, whether to tell your aunt to move here because it's a great place or, you know, I'm really thinking about moving myself. How do you know? How do you really know? And who's going to give you that perspective beyond, look, we all move in rutted paths in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, we have, even of our home, we have a limited view of the, of the city. I, I, because of my job, I get into lots of parts of the city, but left to my own, I drive between Raleigh Court and downtown and back and to my favorite places to eat mm-hmm. off that path. And that's the way I think a lot of people experience their city. How do you get to know your whole city if the newspaper isn't there to tell you about it? Who's going to tell you who you are if the newspaper is, as a city, if the newspaper isn't there to reflect yourself back to you and tell you? And when that's gone, I, I mean, I, there, there are people who 
would be gleeful at the demise of the Roanoke Times because they think we're such a corrupting and biased influence. Um, they're entitled to that. I like to think that when we are gone, and I'm afraid one day we will be, and we could talk about how far down the road we think that is, right. but it ain't going to last forever unless something changes dramatically. Um, I like to think that when they're gone, when we're gone, they're going to go, oh. And they will. They um, will. Because once they, they'll miss hating you, if for nothing else. <laughs> for nothing else. You know what I mean? Like, but they will realize how important a role the newspaper, the Roanoke Times plays in like their daily life, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so. Well, I, and I think, I think Matt was a hundred percent correct about the, how validating and how necessary it is to have a place that you don't have to question what you read about it. That again, the, the local, you know, high school football game scores aren't something that are an opinion or commentary on, on actual news. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I think that going forward with those kind of things and having the ability to ask a question about the place you live in, and I, I can put it into Google, I can put it into CNN or wherever else, I'm not going to get an answer to that question. And you can play telephone and you can message people on Facebook and you can read comments or whatever else. But that again, it's just like playing telephone. Who knows if any of that information is correct or right or whatever else. Mm-hmm. For me, always local news is the place where you can find out a question you have that's so specific to where you're at and have an answer to it in a way that you could never find and in and, and kind of a global scale. And there are really great things that came from connecting people and doing all these other things. But you know, the danger of somewhere like Facebook or YouTube being like, well, you're the reporters now and you're the, you know, this now you make us all this content and write us all this <coughs> stuff and do all these things. We're not going to pay you. We're going to make money off you and whatever else you really lose something. Cause again, the, if it's Twitch, the model is, you know, I have to do this thing and I have to present in this way, you know, again, the, the, the cable news outlets, it's the same way. And, and, and defaulting back to, again you know, that public service, it's a necessary thing to have a place that you can trust because they are connected to the community in which you live and thrive and work. Mm-hmm. And, and if you screw that up and if you can't fix that, then again, I think you're absolutely right, Matt, you're going to, when, when, when the, everything falls, we're going to go, Oh crap. Uh, where do I put my coupons? Where do I know about this? I'll show up at this place and it's closed or whatever else. It's just not going to work in the same way. Uh, you can't rely on Facebook events for everything. You can't do these things that, that the paper like intrinsically serves that people think is so much easier now that you have it, some of it on your phone. And, and I don't, again, I don't know exactly where you go from there. Um, but again, that nonprofit model, I think, is a step in the right direction. I think finding these, these spaces where the news can exist without um, being the, the, the part of a portfolio for something or without being, um, you know, encouraged. And, and you guys weren't because you said like with Buffett or whatever, but encouraged to, to pursue certain kinds of stories or do certain kinds of things because that's where the money is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's going to, that's a very valuable thing that you, you can't replace and wrap it back around with the whiz. No place like home. I really was just about to start singing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, nothing else. We are a signpost for people to react to. Yeah. And and at least it's one source of information that is common and everyone can say, 
yes, they're exactly right, or no, that's BS, right. and we start a conversation. Mm-hmm. And and it's and it's you know one play, you know one organization that in, endeavors to be in the places that you can't be. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to give you that information to react to. And you can decide later whether you trust it or not. And and look, we have to be, we can't just say, I can't go around with my hand out and say, no, keep, keep pay for the newspaper. And by the way, pay for the pay newspaper. Pay for the newspaper, right. Sure. Um, but vote with we your have dollar, to too. Be, we have to be yeah. worthy of it. And, 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 and just to put in a plug, we are trying very hard to be worthy of it. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that we're still overachieving. You know, uh, most newspapers of our circulation size do not have um, people, uh, as many senior uh, reporters and photographers as we have. And we're down to only three photographers, but two of them are veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got 26 years in there. I am not at the top of the seniority list among reporters. Um, you know, I, I sit next to two guys who the three of us have 100 years. Wow. Um, and at the I mean, not just a hundred years in the business, a right. hundred years at the run of times. times, and and there are many more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so we still continue to bring that institutional memory, uh, that mature understanding of of events, and a desire to do more than just bring you the low hanging fruit of much of which we've talked about as a benefit of the newspaper. We're going to cover the court docket. We're going to cover the police blotter. We're going to cover the city council or board of supervisors agenda. Um, but we're going to, we're still striving to do more than that. And every weekend, try to fill the paper up with stories that bring depth and perspective to those more daily events. Mm-hmm. You know, we just did, you know, three of us spent hours and across months to report out this 200 column inch package, three or four stories about moving the bus station. Sure. Um, yeah. Who else is going to tell you that? Um, and, and so we're trying, and I think we're still over overachieving. But our capacity will diminish to do those kinds of stories will diminish over time. And I think you know, you know, we look. We've seen newspapers die very recently, mm-hmm. and we know what that death looks like. And and it begins with you know the shrinking staff, and and once the staff is small, then you struggle to fill up the paper. Uh, every day. And so the paper gets smaller. As the ad base shrinks, the paper gets smaller. Because you may not realize this, the number of pages in the paper is not just a whim, it's directly attached, uh, although not completely dependent upon how many pages we have advertising to support. So the the size of the paper daily shrinks. And then, well, we can't really support seven days a week anymore. So we're not really making any money on you know Monday and Tuesday anymore. So we're just going to drop Monday and Tuesday. Um, and we've seen this even you know uh, Pittsburgh has done sure. that. Um, New Orleans has done that. Not and this is not just little papers. Um, uh, I want to say one of the Detroit papers has done this. And 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 it and it, it is you know it's just a march towards the bottom. And with all these people hanging on to it, still trying to do the thing that is their calling, and with a diminished ability to continue to do it. Well, what are what are some things that you think that that people who support the paper, people who want to support local news, can do? And what are some things that you think local news as an industry can do to kind of help themselves out of this? I think for, first and foremost, um, 
it's hard to even ask people because we make it hard. Sure. Um, but subscribe to the paper. Um, it, when you run into, I, I think we still have a paywall. If you run into our paywall, don't gripe because you've run out of free stuff. Have you ever walked into a coffee shop or Kroger and gotten mad because they didn't give you stuff? Mm-hmm. Right. But people get mad at us when they hit the paywall. We don't work for free. Right. We are still a business. However, and I get, I need a paycheck. Sure. And um, so, please subscribe. And and right now, you can get an insanely cheap deal on an online only subscription. I and if you really only read somewhere. online, it's not yeah. very expensive. Yeah. Um, so please subscribe, even if it's online only. Please subscribe so that you're paying for your news. If you own a small business or a bigger business, and you know, I, we have made it. Well, I, I, this has improved in the just in the last month and a half. A, a month and a half, two months ago, we had one outside sales rep in our advertising department. You know, we may have had advertisers that wanted to do business that couldn't find anybody to call. That's changing. That staff is being beefed back up. You know, please consider, you know, and I notice who advertises with us now. Mm-hmm. You know, and I never, I never used to think much about that because I didn't have to think much about right. that. Sure. But, you know, I noticed um, they're friends of mine, but, you know, uh, David Ellis and, and uh, Robin Smith Ellis in Salem, one's a lawyer, the other's a financial advisor. They kind of have a business together. We have those. I don't really like them, but those stickers that are on the front page of the paper. Mm-hmm. I noticed there was a sticker with a picture of my friend Dave on there. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, <clears throat> I hope we're the best vehicle to help his business. Um, but even if we're not, thank you. Thank you. Right. Um, Northwest Hardware, I don't mean to plug them, but I noticed they can, they're a local business that advertises with us consistently. Consistent. And there, there yeah. are others. And I don't, I don't want to, you know, hate, you know, it's one of those things you start mentioning people, you, you're going to leave somebody out. But still, I think it's important. It's like when, you know, you're <clears throat> listening to NPR mm-hmm. and they say, well, this, you know, program was brought to you by this person. Like mm-hmm. that means something because I think people um, are very quick to, to think of things that are disposable or, 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 junk mail or whatever else in the same way that they look at advertisers and papers and magazines and things like that. But really what they are doing in part, yes, they want to generate some kind of business for it, but they're also supporting that industry mm-hmm. or that, that paper or that magazine or whoever else is, is, is getting that ad space. So, well, and that's where maybe points us towards what I think is going to have to be the future. And, and it is a model I think that's much more like, um, you know, your local NPR affiliate in our case, WVTF. Um, I think we've got to get profit and shareholders and hedge funds out of the news business and and newspapers in particular. Um, you know, my experience with Berkshire Hathaway, and I don't know that they necessarily started out this way, but it became apparent after a while, bolstered by the fact that that you know Warren Buffett is being quoted in multiple publications as saying local newspapers are toast, while he owned dozens of them. Sure. Uh, they didn't see a long-term strategy. And so a lot of us feared from the beginning that it was much more of a slumlord strategy. Mm-hmm. There's profit left to be had. Let's get all the profit out while we can, not you know, reinvest invest minimally. And guess what? When the paper folds, they've got millions of dollars in nice real estate in downtowns all over the East Coast. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty good business strategy. It is a terrible public service strategy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you know, if you look at our website, 
you know, we talked about this earlier. It's obnoxious now. It is mm-hmm. very difficult to find our content, find local content, because our content is is shoved onto the page with basically whatever and is essentially competing with whatever is getting hits. Right. And and what is getting hits on our website is like sort of national content, clickbait photo galleries and things like that, some of which are local and are actually really interesting. We mm-hmm. love these galleries of historic photos of certain events. The yeah, flood that, of, and that was the whole antithesis for this was the one on cinemas in, in, in Roanoke. Yeah. And so those things are great, but they're there for clicks and mm-hmm. they aren't news and they aren't journalism and they're not telling you how to live your life better. Right. Um, so they're great for revenue, but we can't depend on that forever. However, what we're, you know, I'll look at what is the, you know, the top view, what gets the views on our site every day. And the number of days where the obituaries and some clickbait photo gallery of uh, Kobe Bryant's career, important news event, meant a lot to a lot of people. That is not local news. But things like that, uh, you know, coronavirus, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, that's mostly what's driving. And so that's if that's what's driving traffic, then that's what rises to the top on our website. It becomes hard to find our local content. Um, you really have to work for it. And what that tells me is that there, I don't see a long-term strategy for, you know, for newspapers, our newspaper in particular, but all of them from this ownership. And uh, they don't seem to be interested in building um, the website and a web audience for the long term. Um, that we almost never talk about content. And how to do we don't talk about web only content anymore mm-hmm. we used, there used to be a big push for video it never worked but at least it was a thought of how do we create new fresh content web only content that that suggested that we think this is the life raft mm-hmm. i don't think they think it's a life raft i think it's just something else to bleed money out of while they still can sure. um i think i think we need a nonprofit model it's out there um, what that looks like in, in a community the size of Roanoke, I don't know. Um, it is certainly smaller. It is certainly not print. Um, I think those things are both going to be true. Um, I don't know what it would take to get one off the ground in terms of an, an amount of money. Um, there is one that, as far as I can tell, is, it's, is, is going strong in Virginia. It's called the Virginia Mercury. Mm-hmm. It is Richmond-based. It is mostly statewide news. Um, and uh, because they're in the capital, they cover a lot of capital news, but increasingly they're using freelancers and correspondents from around the state to get stories out of Southwest Virginia. Um, my friend Mason Adams, who wrote for us for a long time and now freelances, writes for them, uh, and there are others. Um, so the model is out there and it's working. How we adapt that to a community our size and, and come up with a product that's that's satisfying and fills the entire void, I don't know. Mm-hmm. What I'm... I, I, Look, Berkshire Hathaway, our our, our soon-to-be new overlords, uh, Lee Enterprises, uh, they're in it for profit. They're not going to just say, you know what, nonprofit would be the right way to go. Right. Right. That's, you know, that's not, I I think, and I I don't see, it's possible that a nonprofit entity could rise up while the Renwick Times is still here in its current form. Um, But what I'm really afraid of is that... uh, newspapers like the Renwick Times are going to have to die and and people are going to have to feel that shock. Go into crisis mode rather than being proactive about it. Yeah, you know, this whole idea idea of shock doctrine. 
um, you know, the way you the way you create massive cultural change is a shock to the system. Um, it you, you have to destroy what exists in a way, or at least make people so scared that it's destroyed that they're willing to accept a dramatic change. And well, how far do you think we're from that? I, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, I mentioned all those steps before about you know uh, what it looks like when a newspaper dies. Sure. Um, we have a lot of those steps left. Okay. Um, that means it's time. That gives time for the community also to rally and demand um, in whatever ways that we can do that. That the paper continues to be the institution that it, we need it to be. Mm-hmm. I think. Well, I hope so. I mean, I hope we're valued. It's I hear more now. I think because people who who do care about us have become aware that we're imperiled, mm-hmm. and um, and and I think as there are people who as as the idea of you know facts has become passe, uh, there are people who've responded to that by recognizing that purveyors of fact are are more important than they had thought or had at least bothered to express. Mm-hmm. And so we hear more often. I hear more often, you know, I'm glad you're still there. Thank you. And and I really appreciate that. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think there's an audience out there that is still loyal to the thing we do the way we've always done it. And I like to think that those people are a big enough core to support it in another form. Um, and, uh, you know, what it looks like between now and then, Hard to tell, I, you know. To talk about Lee Enterprises in particular, um, one upside is that, uh, and this is not my thought, but our editorial editor uh, Dwayne Yancey's pointed this out. Berkshire Hathaway was never a newspaper company, never knew how to, never figured out how to be a newspaper company. You know, I, they went from owning one newspaper for many years in Buffalo to buying two, to owning two when they bought the Omaha paper which Buffett said was a sentimental thing because it's his hometown, Mm -hmm. to buying up most of the media general chain, which was another 30 or 40 papers, to then saying, okay, we're in the newspaper business and starting to pick off papers up and down the East Coast, including us, and building a chain of roughly 70 papers, less than half of which were dailies. Mm -hmm. And, And then, so they scaled up really fast. The executives, when the company was created, when we were bought, were the top executives out of the Omaha paper. And as near as I can tell, those people went from running one paper to running 70. And that's a lot to ask that's of anybody. Very much, yeah. And, and they, they struggled. And we could see it. And they tried to respond to it by saying, you know, instead of giving any local autonomy, let's flatten this out as much as we can so we make one decision that's for every paper and... Uh, and all of that. They tried a whole lot of control at first, and then they learned to let go a little bit, but they never did really uh, figure it out, and they, they kind of choked us off more than I think they realized they were doing. And then they decided, well, you know, we really should not be in the newspaper business. Maybe this is a bad idea. Yeah. yeah, and so they farmed out management in 2018 to Lee Enterprises. Um, Lee is an actual newspaper company. Their flagship paper is the estimable St. Louis Post-Dispatch. That's a great newspaper. Um, They're mostly Midwestern. They're based in Iowa. When they took over management, I mean, to me, it looked from the beginning like a lease purchase deal or a test drive. And I figured they would ultimately buy us. Um, And so when it was announced, my personal reaction was, oh, well, it finally happened. Um, It also came on the heels of our our publisher, Retiring, mm-hmm. I'll let y'all interpret that. Sure. Uh, 
And um, and so, you know, looking back, maybe that was an early sign that the deal was getting ready to be announced. So the upside is Lee is a newspaper company. They know how to actually run newspapers. They have a reputation um, for um, figuring out how to make money with newspaper websites. They also have a reputation, however, for uh, jacking up profits or protecting profits through expense reduction. Um, I kind of feel like that we're not necessarily in for cuts, you know, I don't, I don't think there's room left for deep cuts. I was going to say, where sure. are you going There's cut? not really room left for deep yeah. cuts. And, and one of the reasons I say that is that when they took over management, there were deep cuts at, at other Berkshire Hathaway papers. Richmond had a big layoff. Omaha had a big layoff. We didn't. Mm-hmm. They, what they did, they came in here, and the only thing I can see that they really did that was dramatic or noticeable was they, they really jacked up the cover price of the paper. Um, I'm not sure there's much left here to cut, especially since we've gone through more attrition since then. Um so I'm not worried for the short term. Um, I think, uh, uh, and yeah, we are, in, you know, the third or fourth time, we are in the hands of a newspaper company now. However, we are in the hands of a newspaper company that is known uh, for a, a drumbeat of expense reduction. Um, the other thing is that, you know, the, the day that the sale was announced was interesting. We found out in the morning, oh, Lee bought us. And the reaction was kind of oh, ho-hum saw that coming. Sure. By the end of the day, we found out that Alden Global Capital, which is a hedge fund, had bought a 5.9% interest in Lee Enterprises. Okay. And so 5.9% isn't much, but I'm not sure what they started out with with the Tribune Company, but that they now own a third of the Tribune Company, which owns a bunch of newspapers in this country. Right. And, uh, and they seem to be, and they are the biggest single shareholder. So they seem to be driving that bus now. And, you know, the the Tribune Company just offered across their chain a buyout to anybody with 10 years experience at one of those newspapers. So if you were if you worked at a Tribune paper and you started there right out of college, you could be 33 and get a buyout. And and so it went, it resulted in a massive staff reduction. And so the worry is that for Lee for the long term is going to be increasingly gobbled up by this hedge fund, which is just they're they're known as a as a you know they're a vulture sure. hedge fund. They're a newspaper killer, and um, that's worrisome for the longer term. Right. Um, well, so. well, I'm, we could talk about this for a hundred yeah. years, yeah. And, and and it would and all be great and interesting. We stopped with your whiz joke. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but Matt, just you know, just briefly, could you tell us some of like your greatest hits at the paper, and you know, and in, in the kind of sense that you know, moving forward, these are the kind of things, these are the reasons that people you know need to support the paper and, and need to look to it for, for 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 news, as it were. Well, I, I think first of all, just the you know the 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 regular uh, pitter patter of telling you what's going on in your community, that low hanging fruit that is. You know, you can't get to the council meeting. Here's what happened at the council meeting. Mm-hmm. Here's what happened at the school board meeting. Um, all that kind of stuff. The 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 sort of higher value stuff. Um, you know, the bus station project. That's a recent one. I'm sure. really proud of. Um, another fairly recent one was. Uh, boy, this is a, an in the weeds kind of controversy. But the Roanoke Valley Resource Authority, which probably most people don't even know what that is, but they're the people when the, your trash gets picked up from the front of your house, it gets taken to the transfer station down on Hollins Road. 
near downtown and gets put on a train and hauled out to the landfill at Smith Gap. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the resource authority that does that. Um, they were attend- There was this attempt to move away from trains to using trucks to haul the trash out there. They were very far into it, and the Roanoke County Board of Supervisors thwarted the effort. The effort was led by a newly elected member of the supervisors who was a former executive of yeah. the railroad. And it, it had the look and smell of conflict of interest um, from an appearance standpoint. Sure. No, certainly not accusing anyone of a legal conflict of interest. But we exposed that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not the kind of thing that would ever show up on national news or but, state news. That's right. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had a, a guy message me on Facebook after that and said, you know what? I had quit subscribing to the Renault Times, but I read that story online this morning and I'm subscribing again. Yes. So I, I, you know, I hope people recognize that listeners take that lead. Yes. Yeah, that high value. To go back a little farther, you know, I mean, I've, I've you know, highlights of my career. I covered the um, admission of women to Virginia Military Institute after 139 years of being all male. Um, the big story of my time covering that wound up being this. You know, I sort of cut my investigative chops on this investigation of the superintendent and his spending habits. Um, he was just spending donors' money left and right on this luxurious lifestyle, which is really inconsistent okay. with the sort of Spartan life of the VMI guy that mm-hmm. sure, you know that you're taught to accept when you're a cadet there. Um, the uh, and then uh, you know I you could argue I peaked early. My <laughs> personally, my the story that still resonates the most with me is uh, so I'm half Lebanese and I'm a native Roanoker. And so I, uh, because of that, I knew the influence of Lebanese immigrants in this community, yeah. which was obvious and evident if you knew about it, sure. but invisible to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because they did a pretty good job of assimilating after a while. And so there were like Lebanese owned businesses around that you didn't know to be essentially immigrant founded right. businesses. And so I wanted for a long time here, I wanted to tell the story of that particular immigrant group's influence on my hometown. I didn't know how to do it because I was caught up in it. My my you know, my grandfather and great uncles were players. Mm-hmm. And so as a journalist, I'm like, well, how, wait a minute. How do I, I'm not supposed to be in the news. I'm yeah, supposed to be separate from this? it. Right. Finally, I just matured to the point where I realized, okay, I'm ready to tell this story and, um, with, and, and, and just handle that distance. And then I finally got to the point where, you know what? I'll just make my family part of the story. Sure. I'll, their story can be the proxy for the story of immigrants here. Right. And um, part of the reason I did it at the time was, uh, my mom, who was Lebanese, had died two years earlier, and with her, I had really kind of, you know, lost that connection. And I, and I think personally, really, what I was doing is grieving my mother. Mm-hmm. I wanted to retrieve her in some way by learning about sure. where she came from, in ways that I didn't know before. And so I was keeping a journal of my reporting on this, which is, you know, just mostly it was really a journal of reporting. Oh, I, I found this in this place. I need to go find this other information in this other place, reminder, note to self, go look at this court file or whatever. And increasingly, I began writing down my perceptions of my reporting and realizing that I was, it became an emotional journal. Mm -hmm. And as a writer, I was also struggling with sort of a central character that was going to carry the story along. And I was thinking about my great uncle Richard, who was, so my two, my two great uncles had a feud. 
that lasted for 20 years, starting in the 30s, and it really flavored <laughs> life and the family into my lifetime. Right. Wow. And I, I won't get into all that, a whole other story. Um, but, you know, Richard was a good guy in a lot of ways, but looked like kind of a bad guy, uh, the way the narrative was shaping up. And I didn't feel like I could hang the story on him. I needed somebody that would be, that a reader would connect to. And after a while, I thought, well, maybe it's me. Yeah. And so I proposed to my editors that I write a four-part, 400-inch series in first person. And it wasn't entirely in first person, but I became a character in the story sure. that I was really writing. And, yeah. and so what that added was a, the layer of what does it look like to try to retrieve your family's history when a lot of it's been forgotten and I'm going back to relatives who don't know me but don't know me and there's a part of this history that nobody wants to talk about right. because it's ugly and and I don't just mean the feud within my own family but you know Lebanese who suffered discrimination here uh, along with African Americans and mm-hmm. Jews and Italians and, um, uh, and and others you know the, what I found in particular is that older Lebanese people don't want to dwell on that mm-hmm. And they didn't want to talk about it, and I had to really earn their trust, and and um, you know because they their their view is I don't I know I've earned what I've got. I don't want to look like a victim. Sure. And um, and so uh, you know the struggle to get people to talk became part of the story, and the it, the response was um, the story has flaws. There are things I would do differently now. There's a couple of mistakes that I, I, uh, I mean, literal, like factual errors, that it's too late to just go back and add a correction or something, probably, probably responsibly I should. Um, <laughs> but the response to it was literally overwhelming. For, for the, uh, the story ran Sunday through, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Mm-hmm. From Monday morning, really starting Sunday afternoon, um, through all of that next week and, and beyond, I, I, had, I, I didn't do anything except deal with correspondence about it. I didn't write another word, uh, and it and it and it really drained me. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was people recognizing their story, yeah. and not just my family story, but my story. And how did you find this stuff? So a lot of there was a lot of how-to genealogy questions, mm-hmm. and um, and people who weren't. I mean, it's not, a lot of it was Lebanese people, but like I remember somebody who was German, right? Sure. You know, you wouldn't yeah. think it would be anything like someone immigrating from an uh, you know an Arab country, but they're like, no, 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 no. I totally recognize my family story in that. People calling me, telling who knew my my grandmother and my grandfather, and telling me stories about shopping in their store on Marshall Avenue. It's um, my whole career has been rewarding. I, nothing I've done has been more personally rewarding than than that story, and I, that published in two thousand and three. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you, sometime in twenty twenty, someone will contact me about that and say, "Hey." I read that story. You mentioned a family named Wiggins in there. Can you help me figure out if that's my family or not? I'm still, it's not even online. Wow. You cannot find this story online, but I think wow. it's been just sort of the text has been stored here and there. People have kept copies of it the way we used to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I, I kid you not from 2003 on. And for a while it was, it was monthly. And then every six months, I still have not gone a year without hearing from somebody who has found that story and read it and has a question. That's um, so beautiful. That's yeah. wonderful, and, that's it, and beautiful. It, it speaks to the, the power of a, of local history yeah. and people's ability to to relate it to what's going on now. Yeah. And yeah. It, Matt, I think if that was your your 
one parathetical or the paper is one parathetical, I mean, that I think it demonstrates why it's it's all worth it, at least Absolutely. to me. Matt, man, thanks again so much for coming yes. on and doing this with us and, and, and let us keep you here. I know you're busy. <laughs> We're looking at the, the city council <laughs> clock right. going okay. uh, about 40 minutes. But thank, thank you. We appreciate, we literally could talk for days well, on end and um, <laughs> you will probably get another phone call from mm-hmm. us, but this has been fascinating and I appreciate your openness in sharing with us, um, kind of your thoughts and about where we are in the state of, you know, the Roanoke Times in the news. And I think it's really important for all of us to really know and understand. Well, I, I thank you guys for recognizing cool. that this is, it is important and it, and it, if, if it doesn't matter to people, it should. Right. And that, that this is a moment that's approaching crisis mm-hmm. um, for the informa- information ecosystem in, in our community. Um, and it looks, that ecosystem looks dramatically different without, mm-hmm. there will be other places to get news. The TV stations will still be here, WVTF, WFIR. We're not the be all end all. Uh, I, I understand that now. And if I gave that impression, I, I apologize because that's wrong. But we're a big player and we're a particular kind of player. Right. And we're the only one of that kind. Right. Um, ironically, I think papers like the Tribune, um, Colors, which is not a paper, but a magazine, the Salem Times Register. I think because they have a more solid base, I think they'll have a longer life um, uh, than uh, than we will. But people should know that as far as the local traditional daily paper, you know. Well, vote with your dollars, everybody. Do, right, we're going to do what we can, you know, to keep the Roanoke Times alive. So, thank you, everyone who's I listening. Hope you did a lot subscribe today. today. <laughs> yes, but Matt, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, we're going to kind of wrap up now, and at the end of every show, we talk about kind of what we're looking forward to in the in the next week, whether it's you know something local, state, government, whatever is going on. Um, Karen, you like to start. Yes. So this week, um, as we think about what I'm looking forward to, I actually, so Sarah Roanoke is having their Black Love Matters conference. And it's really more for providers kind of in that space, helping with domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, but I will be attending kind of as a fly on the wall, and I'm really curious to to learn more about that and kind of what what they're doing. And so that's kind of where I'm looking forward to. Uh, Matt, what, what, what you got on your docket? So um, short term, and, and, and I kind of don't know the rest of the week work-wise. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm off to the council meeting in about a half hour. Um, and, uh, well, I'll go back to a story that was in, that we had in the, in, in the paper today, and I think it's going to drive some things they do the rest of the week uh, work-wise, which is uh, the Running Valley Broadband Authority is um, going to be venturing into um, providing, not themselves, but providing a network for mm-hmm. uh, Internet service providers to deliver their service through fiber to your home Mm -hmm. and what that means is it would break the what is effectively a monopoly by the cable providers that you know most of us in the Roanoke City if you have high-speed internet you're Mm -hmm. getting it from Cox if you're in Salem you're getting it from Comcast Um, uh, not sure how long the build-out will take and it'll be done in phases but um, but the the landscape for internet services about to change in this town 
um, through that and in addition on tonight's city council agenda there is a um, an application for a cable television franchise from Shentel and I I don't know but I think that's really about internet too and so you Probably. know the 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 menu of internet service providers in in, in this town and in the valley is going to be uh, um, more diverse. It's fantastic um, in fairly uh, short order. And then the other thing on uh, the, this afternoon's meeting is um, the they're going to council is going to get a briefing on the Wasina Bridge replacement. Um, and this is going to be a big, messy project. It's going to take about two years. And uh, they have to close the bridge, tear down the existing one uh, in order to replace it. Unlike the Franklin County Bridge, there's no sort of obvious one block over, you know, 10 blocks down detour. Right. Um, and, uh, and you get to cross a river and a railroad to set a railroad right. track. So it's a, it's a big, complicated project. I think it's the longest span in the city. Um, and and it's gonna, the closure is going to come at a time when, you know, the Wasina... Um, little Wasina uh, commercial village is really and it's booming right come now. to thrive and, yeah. and, and so there's some questions about how those businesses will be um, impacted um, uh, I saw in in other media um, on television and I, and I really can't remember if it was channel 10 or channel 7 but credit to them for uh, for getting it. I think it was the owner of uh, R&D was saying that mm-hmm. you know what they're anticipating is it'll become maybe more of a cul-de-sac kind of development temporarily uh, more pedestrian friendly because traffic isn't through traffic anymore, um, and uh, and you know so they're at least trying to find that upside in it. So those are things I'm looking at this week. Cool. Well, uh, you know we talked about the Oscars a little while back, and as a result of the Oscars, uh, the Grand Theater brought back Parasite. So if you miss Parasite, you should go see it uh, in their large theater, which is where it belonged from the get go. Um, so go check out Parasite again before it goes away because it, it, it is worth your time and is honestly deserving of your money and you can go see it at a, at a locally owned theater. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you all for listening to Our Voices, Our Community presented by Colors Virginia Magazine. Today's episode is sponsored by Crandall and Cott, Attorneys at Law. You can also listen to us each Sunday at 3 p.m. on WROE 95.7 Radio Free Roanoke. If, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> if you liked what you heard, leave us a review. Also, be sure to like Our Voices, Our Community on Facebook. Thank you, everybody. 